Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate, broadcasting from home, so I hope nothing goes wrong today. Jazz has gone through many changes over the course of its history, and as Boston Globe jazz writer and Emerson College professor Bill Beitler reveals in a book from Lever Press called Make It New, Reshaping Jazz in the 21st Century, the process is continuing, often in surprising ways. Each chapter is devoted to the careers and music of some of the most innovative musicians of our day, Jason Moran, Vijay Iyer, Rudresh Mahantapa, The Bad Plus, Miguel Zenon, Anat Kohn, Robert Glasper, and Esperanza Spaulding. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Bill Beitler to our show now. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, jazz originated in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and uh, along the way, we've had New Orleans, ragtime, blues, swing, bebop, cool jazz, hard bop, modal jazz, free jazz. It was going through a, a as you point out, a neoclassical phase at the end of the 20th century. Are any of these styles reflected in the music of the past 20 years? Oh, yeah, very much so. In fact, um, maybe to a degree that uh, musicians hadn't been doing for a while, instead of kind of uh, taking everything from bebop onward, and in some cases, a lot of musicians kind of ignoring more recent things like uh, what at one point had been called avant-garde, you know, those sort of things that musicians associated with the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians out of Chicago. Now, all of a sudden, the musicians are going way back into the history of jazz. It just the other day, um, Jason Moran, one of the people in the book, he's the artistic director for the Kennedy Center in D.C., he did what they called a couch concert, you know, to kind of get us through the pandemic um, thing. And so he was playing from his home, and he was he did uh, a version of Carolina Shout, and he did a updated version of What a Wonderful World. So I mean, yeah, they, all of these styles, uh, nobody has abandoned them. They, they're just trying to move them forward. And we'll hear examples of references to Dixieland. Uh, to stride and other things uh, when we play some of the music in a little while. Uh, in your introduction, you quote the pianist Kenny Werner as saying, the bad thing is that people got hung up on what is and isn't jazz uh, at, in the end of the 20th century. And you also quote Wayne Shorter's definition of jazz. He said, jazz shouldn't have any mandates. Jazz is not supposed to sound like something that's required to sound like jazz. For me, he said, the word jazz means I dare you. Exactly. I, I think what's happened is uh, at some point the musicians decided to accept the dare again. Uh, there was that <laughs> neoclassical period where it, it became very important, you know, particularly Wynton Marcellus is the guy that uh, made it important for jazz to be taken as seriously as classical music by you know, the more moneyed, upper-class sort of people. So we now have jazz at Lincoln Center, in part because Wynton was such a great musician, and he decided this is really important, that uh, black American music ought to be respected and taken as, like, essentially the classical American music. And um, But at some point, you know, at various points, I, I started listening to jazz when I was in high school in the 1970s, and there was a time when jack, jazz rock fusion was a big thing. And it was fighting, you know, even right in the beginning of that. It's like, are these guys selling out? They're playing, you know, bringing rock into uh, jazz and mixing the two up. And, you know, some people thought, you know, it was a sellout. 
Winton for a long time was feuding with Miles Davis because he didn't like that Miles Davis went away from his, you know, second great quintet and and started playing, uh, you know, albums like the, the music on albums like Bitches Bro. Um, and at, at some point, I think the point that Kenny Werner was making was that the great thing about what Winton did was because he was such an exceptional musician and because he brought such respect to the music as it existed was that uh, the younger musicians following him, they really took the history of the music very seriously. They really took learning to play their instruments really seriously. And, uh, but at some point they decided to start doing things, you know, kind of to reflect the times as opposed to trying to play retrospective interpretations about the music as it had existed. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. But one well, thing I, I asked, uh, go ahead. No, well, I, I was following up on what you're saying. Your book's title is Make It New, which suggests that the goal is to continue making it new. But then you quote one of the musicians you profile, Jason Moran, is saying, I'm not obsessed with trying to do anything new. Uh, these, mm -hmm. these musicians uh, seem to be incorporating other genres of music and the arts into jazz, although that's not new either. Horace Silver uh, brought gospel in, uh, there were rock elements in hard pop. But uh, in this case, uh, these musicians are um, cl incorporating classical, both Western and Indian music, uh, popular music, hip hop, rock, bluegrass, klezmer, Brazilian music, but also literature, film, photography, and visual arts. Yeah, you name it. Um, Jason is one, you know, in some ways, uh, a younger musician named Christian Scott uh, called him, I think, he's kind of like the godfather of, of all this, according to Christian. Um, and, and Jason's somebody that really, I mean, he's digging into, he plays stride piano. He's got a new project uh, that he was doing, like, uh, around the turn of the year with, um, where he's exploring the music of James Reese Europe, who introduced mm -hmm. Uh, jazz to Europe in, in the you know World War One, um, but at the same time he's a, he's a guy you know like he did the score for the movie Selma. He uh, does a lot of work with visual artists. Um, yet he, he's, I have he's to say I have a, a I have a special fondness for him. He once composed a piece that was based on the rise and fall of my voice during an interview. <laughs> oh really. Yeah, uh, he's unbelievable. Uh, I thought the interview he was, he was talking in with you about his Fats Waller project and something. I yeah, thought. yeah. But you, you, you argue that this new generation of jazz is increasingly more international, becoming more open to women as instrumentalists and band leaders, and that contemporary jazz is reasserting itself as a force for social change, prompted by things like Black Lives Matter and Me Too movement and and the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, right, I think, the same week of his inauguration, Vijay Iyer and Rudresh Mahantapa, Pedrito Martinez, a handful of jazz musicians gathered, and they had, I forgot, it was a, I think the concert was called something like Music Against Fascism. <laughs> um, they, were, they were very... No comment. You know, they, they, they knew something was coming. Vijay has his most recent album was called Far From Over. And if I had, you, your producer asked me to supply some potential music clips and 
the title track from that album ran like eight minutes. It was, I think, a little too long for you guys to use. But that music apparently began, it was premiered at Barack Obama's inauguration. And then the album came out around the time that Trump uh, came into office. And, you know, the meaning of Far From Over had kind of evolved, you know, from, you know, that... that uh, uh, racial injustice and so forth hadn't been cured yet, even though Barack Obama had been elected, and it, it, the point was really driven home by the fact that the, you know Trump got reelected was elected as a kind of backlash to Obama. Now, as you point out, we only have an hour, and uh, in fact, less than an hour. Mm -hmm. We want to play as much music as we can. So, let's talk a bit about the people you've chosen and why you put them in the book. The first chapter is about. The pianist Jason Moran, uh, you suggest he's a personal favorite. What distinguishes him from other pianists of his generation? Um, I, a lot of the pianists that came along uh, for quite a while there were intensely influenced by people like Herbie Hancock and Bill Evans, Chikuria, a couple others like that. Um, they, they became the dominant piano players of the year. And, you know, the, the Pianists who have moved beyond that, like Vijay Iyer or Jason Moran, they're influenced by those pianists as well, but they also tended to uh, gravitate toward uh, people somewhat more, Vijay used the word, word once, composerly pianists, and people mm -hmm. who were more idiosyncratic in the way they played. Vijay and Jason are both really into Thelonious uh, Monk, uh, Andrew Hill, uh, Jason studied with Jackie Byard, and Jackie Byard is somebody that, like Jason, was able to play extremely uh, forward, modern type music, but also knew the full history of jazz going back to Earl Hines and people like that. So um, that, I would think, had something to do with Jason Moran. And the, the track that I picked for that is a song called Southside Digging, which is, I, I happened to be there the night that he recorded it solo, but he's got a versions of that song on three albums of his, recent yeah. albums. I'm from the south side of Chicago, so I was thrilled to hear that when he played it. <laughs> and when I, when I listened to this song, um, I, you know, I haven't talked to Jason about this. I don't know if this, if this was his intention, but the beginning of the song, like the first two minutes of it, you know, two and a half maybe, of a four-minute song or this kind of like repeated kind of avant-garde uh, contemporary classical sort of it actually starts to grade after a while i think of it as kind of like architectural archaeological sort of digging and it toward the end of it suddenly it turns and it's like he's dug through all this subsequent history of he himself he's a guy who had um you know taken suzuki method piano uh, grew up learning classical piano and he had a cousin of his father would come through town who was a blues piano player. So when Albert King came through town, Tony Lorenz, his dad's cousin, and and Tony's brother, Michael Lorenz, were in Albert King's band. And the story that Jason told was that, uh, you know, these guys would come in and they Tony would teach Jason some piano licks and Tony's and Jason's reaction was like, you know, I, I didn't have fun playing the piano when this guy's playing, he's having fun. I want to do that. So anyway, with the song Southside Digging, they're, they're eventually get into the, like a really blues-oriented jazz piano. He's digging into what the roots of his own music 
He plays a modern version of Stride near the end. Let's um, right. let, let's listen to it. Okay. Sure. It's from the Armory concert.
Southside Digging from the Armory Concert uh, by Jason Moran, one of the uh, musicians featured in Bill Beitler's new book called Make It New, Reshaping Jazz in the 21st Century. And we should point out that uh, if people are looking to buy the book, that your name isn't spelled like it should be pronounced Beitler. It's B-E-U-T-T-L-E-R. Okay, well, go ahead. Poor attempt to Americanize it. It should be Boitler, but uh, my German grandfather tried to Americanize it and did a poor job. <laughs> well, anyway, you answered to Beitler. Uh, you've divided, yeah. you've devoted a chapter to a trio called the Bad Plus, and inter interestingly, they're from Minneapolis, not a city I generally associate with jazz. But their their repertoire yeah. is also. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, they're. You know, you don't typically think of Minnesota as being a big jazz town, and two of the three of them are from Minneapolis. The third one lived about an hour away in Wisconsin, and uh, they were a pretty controversial band. They're, they may be one of the last ones, groups that got major record label backing. Columbia picked them up like around the year 2001, 2002, something like that. Um, and that you know, some people really dislike that fact, the fact that they, these were white guys, you know, whereas there were a lot of comparably, comparably gifted African-American musicians who were not getting that uh, major label kind of treatment. Uh, but what made their name and maybe is, ought to be set aside a bit is, is that they started playing covers of uh, the pop music that they had grown up with, or actually two of the three of them had. The, the pianist didn't really care for pop music, apparently. Could care less about it, but um, uh, Reed Anderson, the bass player, and the drummer, Dave King, uh, you know, they had gone to middle school together as they're growing up in high school and stuff. They, they were thinking about, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, in fact, I think they even may have recorded something at some point, like covers of Prince and other, other bands who were big. Well, Nirvana, Blondie, Pink Floyd, Queen, Neil Young, among others. But but they also uh, did a version of Ornette Coleman's science fiction and even performed a version of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. So Gary Giddens has uh, once dubbed them an equilateral chamber group. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. A little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they're known for these covers and it's, it's kind of like a misconception about them because typically if you go to see them play, they might do one if yeah. and sometimes not even one what they usually do, are doing is their own compositions they're really gifted composers as well read Anderson yeah. in particular um, i was but, struck uh, immediately by how much leeway they give their drummer uh dave king uh one critic described him as two parts keith moon one part art blakey he does a lot more than just simply act as a timekeeper mm-hmm yeah, well, most of the drummers nowadays, that's kind of common among that. You know, the Tyshawn Sori and Marcus Gilmore and all the uh, all the, the elite drummers now are you know going more than just keeping time. Um, and in a band like the Bad Plus, I mean, they, they well, this, this applies to Vijay Iyer's trio, too, or Jason Moran's trio. Um, it's, it's not necessarily... In fact, with the Bad Plus, at some point it became kind of a sore point that the, the assumption was that Ethan Iverson was the leader because he was the pianist. And they were really, they meant it to be a band concept. And um, 
yeah, so um, I don't know where to go from there, but I thought... Well, well let's listen to them, okay? okay? You suggested sure. that we play their recording of Smells Like Teen Spirit from their mm -hmm. These Are the, the, the Vistas album. Uh, why this mm -hmm. track in particular, other than the fact that it's one of the, the shorter tracks? Well, it's not just that it's one of the shorter tracks. It's also, I mean, some of the songs that they've chosen to cover, I could almost guess that they're picking just because they were familiar, but maybe they weren't that into. But Smells Like Teen Spirit was like a really... Uh, really popular one. It's, it's a beautiful melody. Uh, Reed Anderson says that I think that was the one that they treated like modal jazz. Um, and he, he said, that, you know, take take away John Coltrane. It's not that different than something like a Love Supreme. I mean, it's just, it's a different different song, but the approach to the music they're they're taking the music seriously. And they're, and they're you know they're also doing things. I'm sure you recall, you know, like in the 1970s, there were a lot of great musicians, whoever, Sarah Vaughan, whoever, felt like they had to cover the Beatles. And, and that seemed kind of unnatural, whereas the musicians now, when they're covering pop music from their youth, it, it's, it's something that really resonates with them. And in fact, the song Smells Like Teen Spirit was also covered by somebody else in the, in the book, Robert Glasper, did his version of it as well. So it's, it's really... It's like if, if there's standards for this generation of musicians, that that's, should be one of them, not songs that were recorded in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Well, let's listen to it. Smells All Like right. Teen Spirit by The Bad Plus.
Bad Plus playing Smells Like Teen Spirit from there. These are the Misses album. They are among the musicians featured in Bill Beitler's new book called Make It New, Reshaping Jazz in the 21st Century. How many books have you written altogether, Bill? This is my first. Ah, well, but you've written a lot of magazine articles. And uh, you've been all over the place, Downbeat and a whole bunch of other places. And now you're working for a major newspaper. Uh, Go ahead. It's it's more of it's become kind of a moonlighting thing to do stuff for the Boston Globe. My main job is I'm a professor at Emerson College. Um, Mm -hmm. So the book earned me tenure and uh, it, 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 it probably was a good thing that I was a college professor because the commercial publishing houses were not much interested in loud and doing books about jazz, you know, contemporary jazz. Um, so there's really no money in it. You had to take, I had to take it to an academic publisher. Um, I thank God that the Academy is, is still interested in jazz as, as something that's, you know, important. And a number of the musicians you feature in this book are teaching at different universities. Exactly. And that's, you know, another new thing about the 21st century jazz musicians that not all of them in the book, but the vast majority of them in the book and out of the book, they, they, they study uh, jazz in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, they, right. they usually nowadays they complete a degree. So a lot, some of them have graduate degrees doing that. Uh, you know, they, they spent time at conservatories and, you know, they, they pretty quickly, the good ones also hit the road. But, you know, it used to be like in the 1980s, uh, somebody like Branford Marcellus would go to the Berkeley College of Music for a couple of years and then Art Blakey would hire him and he'd take off, you know. And now not only do the musicians get trained in the classrooms, they also wind up in the classrooms supplementing their income, mm-hmm. teaching other musicians. Let's get to another one of the musicians because I want to get as many in as we can. Uh, alto saxophonist Miguel Zenon. Uh, although he's from Puerto Rico, didn't he put together a quartet that was made up of a drummer from Mexico, a bassist from Austria, and a pianist from Venezuela? Was it uh, his intention to uh, put together an international group? And was that reflected in its music? I think he just kind of connected with those uh, musicians. Uh, The the Austrian uh, bass player Hans Glashvignig and um, the pianist Louis Perdomo were both classmates of his. I think they were, they might not have been classmates. They might have been a few years ahead of him at the Manhattan School of Music where Miguel got a master's degree. And then Antonio Sanchez, I think he may have played with in uh, David Sanchez's band, the uh, Mexican drummer. So, and at some point uh, he hired, when Antonio Sanchez got busy playing with Pat Metheny and uh, doing his, own, uh, I think Gary Burton and doing his own projects. Uh, Miguel needed a new drummer, so he, he took Henry Cole, who's from uh, Puerto Rico. Miguel is. Now, uh, Latin the, the jazz. Thing, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. The big thing about Miguel is that uh, he's he's out of the. There was a, a group that called themselves, I think, M Base Co. Yeah, M-Base was the name of the music. I forgot if M-Base Collective or Coalition or something like that. Um, uh, Steve Coleman was an important figure in that, Greg Osby, Cassandra Wilson at one point. And uh, 
Steve Coleman is a contemporary of Wynton Marcellus, uh, who also is like very into you know, Charlie Parker and mastering all that those that sort of music. However, the M-Base people were all along when the neoclassical music was kind of like kept capturing all the attention from the general press. Uh, the M-Base people were continuing to try to advance the music in various ways. And some of the people in the book, particularly Vijay Iyer, Rajesh Mahantapa, and Miguel, uh, were very much influenced by Steve Coleman. Vijay toured with Steve Coleman early on in his career, and they they kind of, Steve Coleman, a lot of his projects kind of uh, take on, they reach into areas outside of music to find inspiration for writing music. And in Miguel's case, he really decided to dive deep into his Puerto Rican heritage. So he's he did an album of Figaro music, which is folk music that comes from the rural interior of Puerto Rico. He did a music, an album called Esta Plena, which is the Plena music, which is you know urban music. It's sometimes I think it's called something like that. The, the newspaper of the streets where people will sing songs about the issues that are happening in, in their communities. Uh, he's done albums that have to, to do with uh, pop music in Puerto Rico. And the clip that I picked, there's a project that was really scholarly. He actually went around like an anthropologist or a sociologist and conducted interviews with people about who uh, basically uh, New Yorkers of Puerto Rican uh, descent and talked about how the two kind of communities, the name of the Amos identities are changeable. And at various points in, in that album, he's actually placed clips of the interviews that he was conducting. And, De yeah, donde vienes? Where are you yeah. from? Now, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of political, obviously. Um, I, I suspect it was inspired to some degree by the response to Hurricane Maria by the Trump administration. Uh, the album actually, the album actually preceded that, but yeah, I'm sure. Um, but it could well yeah. immigration policy anyway. But it is interesting. Well, yeah. Just one more thing before we get to it: Latin jazz has tended to have a Cuban flavor, with musicians like Mario Bowser, Machito, Chico Farrell, and Dizzy Gillespie wrote Manteca with Chano Pozo. But uh, Miguel Zanon has introduced, as you said, traditional Puerto Rican traditions into the 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 mix. Uh, are they similar in any way? Oh yeah, sure. But I, I think the even even the Cuban influence now as the, the Cuban musicians, um, Pedrito Martinez, uh, David Reyes. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, the music isn't so much what we think of, you know, like salsa sort of dance music. Uh, what what these musicians are, the, the Cubans are, are digging deep into, uh, like the Santeria of religion mm -hmm. that going far back into West African drumming. Sure. Um, and and Miguel is is you know they've been great Puerto Rican jazz musicians. Well, people like. So. so let's listen to it because we, we're running out of time. De Donde Vienes Overture. Uh, this is Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. I'm speaking with Bill Beitler, whose book is Make It New, Reshaping Jazz in the 21st Century.
Alicia Sanon. I was born and raised in Bronx, New York, and my family is from Puerto Rico. Santurce, both of my parents. Okay, so I'm Juan Flores, and I was actually born in Virginia, in, Rich in Alexandria, Virginia, near D.C., because my father was working in D.C. Uh, so with about, within a few years, the family moved to New York. So my father is Puerto Rican from the old school. Uh, he was born in 1900 uh, in Barcelona. My mother is Hungarian, so I'm a Hungarian, as they're called. And, and what I found out much more recently is that there's actually a lot of Hungarians because the Hungar Hungarian neighborhood in New York is right adjacent to Albany. Um, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, raised in uh, Windsor, Connecticut, right, right, side, right outside of Hartford. Um, my dad was born in uh, London, Connecticut, so he's from there, but origins from uh, like the West Indies. And my mother's uh, born in Puerto Rico, Gladys, Puerto Rico. My name is Bonafide Rojas. So I was born and raised in the Bronx in uh, October of 1977. And um, I grew up in the Grand Concourse section of the Bronx. My mother was born in San in Juanica mm -hmm. in 1950, and my father was born in San Dulce in
De Donde Vienes by uh, Miguel Zenon. Uh, we're talking about jazz in the 21st century, uh, and a lot of things have changed. Uh, over the uh, course of jazz history, most of the most famous um, women were pianists, with some notable exceptions. But the two women that you have in this book are relative rarities on their instruments. Anat Cohn, who plays clarinet and saxophones, and uh, Esperanza Spalding, who plays bass. Let's talk a bit about Anat. Um, she's from from Israel, uh, plays mm -hmm. clarinet, which is a favorite of Klezmer musicians, but I suspect that she uh, really was more influenced by her brothers, Abishai and Yuval, who are also jazz musicians. Right. Uh, the three of them, Yuval is the eldest of them, and that's the middle child, and uh, Abishai, the trumpet player, is the young, younger of the three of them, you know, and they, they all grew up. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, you know, jazz is, in terms of it's getting more international, it's like you know, jazz has been international a long time. It's been in Europe for a long time. It's been in Japan. It's been in Latin America. But they're, it's starting to, to, there are musicians coming from countries that were not identified as jazz countries for a long time. So, and Israel is a place that's been producing a lot of musicians. Many of them were coming over to study at the New School in New York. Uh, at some point, like yeah, I think it was in the 1990s, Walter Blanding from Winton's uh, Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra was over there because it was really white. Arnie Lawrence, great American jazz musician, had actually helped found the, the jazz program at the New School. He moved to Israel and settled there. So all of a sudden there was like this, this growth of jazz studies in Israel, and, uh, you know, Anat and her two brothers, you know, had a lot of fun doing this. The music, they each eventually came over and studied at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and the, the first night I really got a, a, a good look at them uh, was at the Club Scholars here in Boston, and uh, by luck I was seated right at the front of, of a group called and that typically leads your own group, but they also have a band together they call the Three Cohens. So they were like the front-line horn section. I just right in front of them. They had uh, Aaron Goldberg, who was a great pianist from Boston, uh, Omar Abital, who's also Israeli, on bass. He's, he's a wonderful composer and bass player, and Jonathan Blake, a great drummer. And it was really one of the more entertaining and fun nights uh, seeing jazz, you know, in my whole life of seeing jazz. Uh, the three Cohens were just have all, all six people in the band were having enormous fun playing the music. A couple of the songs that they did were like reaching all the way back to, you know, Dixieland. I think they played Tiger Rag that night, I think probably as an encore, you know, which is going which all the way back to the 1917 by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Exactly, yeah. So I, I, I can't remember. I don't think that I was. Maybe I should have told you to play that song because it's just so much fun. No, we are going to play Tiger Rag. Oh, great. The, the other song I was thinking of, uh, there's a song that she does, uh, an original composition of hers called Ima, which means mother. And, you know, when I was talking to her, she was talking about how music is meant to convey emotion. And, you know, she didn't really care that much whether she was playing, uh, whether what she was playing was choro music from Brazil, which she's also very much into, or she was playing jazz. Um, yeah, she says her approach Ima, is world music. Right. 
And when she was playing the story, she told me that her father was sick and dying in the hospital. She was playing that one night, and even though I'm not mother, of course, she was thinking of her father. And just she was playing a concert someplace. She was like crying, you know, playing with her eyes closed. The audience couldn't tell it. And and she's she's talking about this. That's the whole point for making music to her is to have this emotional resonance. Um, and you mentioned klezmer in passing. Um, you know, klezmer is the, the music that you would think that a clarinetist uh, would from Israel would be playing at. One of her recent albums was called Happy Song with this group. She's got the Annette Cohen Tentet. And she and her um, musical partner, Odette Laverie, decided, well, we really can't do an album that's featuring her clarinet without doing any klezmer. And at least in Odette's version of it, is, uh, typically Israeli kids, they don't really care for klezmer any more than American student musicians are into Dixieland sort of stuff, you know, it's, it's the music of your grandparents or great-grandparents. And so, uh, you know, on the other hand, the Israeli musicians, or at least the Coens, they love Dixieland. Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't have that big distinction that Americans do between was this modern stuff or not. Well, so, one, of they, the, one of the leading uh, clarinetists of our time, Don Byron, told me he loves mm -hmm. playing Klesmer. But, but we, right. we're going to run out of time, so I want to get this yeah. in. Tiger Egg from an album called Family with Anat Cohn and her brothers Avishai and Yuval.
effect the day of the fire. Annette Cohn and uh, Tigerak with uh, her brothers and other musicians. We don't have time to play any other tracks, unfortunately. We've run out of time, but we want to mention the other musicians that you've written about. B.J. Iyer, uh, the pianist, saxophonist, Rudresh uh, Mahantapa, who uh, they both uh, come from Indian immigrant families. Robert Glasper, uh, who uh, whose background, his mother was a, a singer, and he's he's really incorporated a lot of R&B in the music. What, in his music, in fact, won uh, a Grammy for the best R&B album. And also uh, uh, Esperanza Spaulding, who uh, probably is as well-known, well, she's a four-time Grammy winner, but probably as well-known as a singer as then as, as a bass player. Still, it's odd. There aren't too many women bass players. Uh, anything you want to say in the last minute or two that we have left? Uh, just to correct you on the bass players, Linda Mahan O oh, is a tremendous bass player. Um, okay. And, you know, one, one of the best going on now. And she's getting back to the international thing. So she's from Australia. And, um, Esperanza is from I'm Portland, there. which is not exactly a jazz town either. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, uh, the other thing I just point out about Esperanza, you know, she became famous because she was named the Best New Artist of the Year at the Grammy Awards one year, which upset uh, Justin Bieber's fans to no end. Um, in some ways, she is probably the best known of the people in the book, but she's also one of the most radical sort of people, and she's really open to experimentation. She had a project called Emily's B-Plus Evolution. There was this big theatrical piece where she was performing as kind of alter ego character whose name she got is her, from her own middle name. Uh, she did a project called Exposure, in which she created an album over the course of 77 hours, and the entire process was broadcast live on Facebook. She came up with, you know, actually very good songs, and then she limited the sales of the album to 7,777 copies, and you know, said she was never going to play music in public either. Yeah, um, and then the most recent thing was called Twelve Little Spells, in which she wrote music for. Uh, each of 12 body parts. The, the clip I was going to have you play was called Fang, and it's based on the hips. But that one was also something she's she spoken about, how uh, jazz is the only form of music from the African diaspora that has gotten away from movement, and 12 Little Spells and Emily's. The only uh, I wish, wish we could have played Fang. Maybe we'll uh, slip it into something else. But we're pretty much out of time, although I did want to mention that the New York Times has called V.J. Iyer a social conscience, multimedia collaborator, system builder, rhapsodist, historical thinker, and multicultural gateway. And in a way, that description could be applied to all of the people that you put in this book. Yeah, I would say so. Um, well, but thank you so you much. For, thank you so much for being on our show. We've, we have run out of time. My guest is Bill Beitler, B-E-U-T-T-L-E-R. His book, Make It New, Reshaping Jazz in the 21st Century from Lever Books. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Leonard. Thanks for having me. 
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, as well as our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopit at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopitAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. Also, if you'd like to send me your comments about any particular program, you can always reach me directly through my email address, LeonardLopit at WBAI.org. I'm continuing to doing these shows from my home in the interest of self-isolating, and we hope that you'll continue to tune in despite the fact that the sound quality and production values obviously aren't what they would be if we were working from our regular broadcast studio. We hope you're doing okay in this situation, uh, a situation that has unfortunately become the new normal. We're preempted on Monday for special WBAI programming, but please join us again on Tuesday when Michael Ripps will talk about his new book, The Golden Flea a story of obsession and collecting. Have a great weekend.